0: Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man simple. Man's complex problems are of his own devising. God made us simple. God made each one of us simple, and we made life complex. It's us. We've made it complex. Simplicity was and is our destiny. There's a freedom that comes with simplicity. There is a joy and a balance that comes with a life lived simply. Simply. Simplicity takes place in in two parts in our lives. So inside of us, it takes place in two parts. It takes place first in our inner hearts and minds. So simplicity is something that lived in our hearts and is lived in our minds. And then simplicity also takes place in our outer lifestyle or our outer way of living. It takes place in both of those. So if you have a life lived in simplicity, it's in your inner heart and your mind and it also will be shown in your outer lifestyle. You can't have the outer lifestyle of simplicity if you don't have the inner heart and mindset. And, and if you have the inner heart and mindset, it will manifest, it will show up in an outer lifestyle. You can't have one without the other. If you have one, you will have both. They go hand in hand. They might wonder what a video about one, someone wanting a helicopter has to do with simplicity, but that video has to do everything with simplicity because that's how we live. That video articulates our culture. It articulates our culture's desire and drive to accumulate, to get the next best thing. Our culture wants that next thing. I, I love that the, the, the video goes from a helicopter all the way down to a fella in a wheelchair who just says, that guy can go wherever he wants. But even that guy in the wheelchair has something to be grateful for, has many things to be grateful for. But our culture says, you can't be happy until you love what the next guy has. So you might have a really nice bike, but that guy has a car. And you might have a car, but the person beside you has a new car. And, and they might have a new car, but what they really wanted was that off-road car. And we all know you're not worth anything until you have a Porsche or a BMW. And even they, they're not worth anything until they get that helicopter or that hover car. Right? This, our culture tells us that we're not happy until we have the next thing. And if you want a great uh, uh, a video or a great way to see this in person, the next time an iPhone comes out, go stand outside an Apple store for the night. Go show up the night before to the next iPhone's launch, and you will see people sitting outside the iPhone in tents, or sitting outside the iPhone store in tents, waiting for the newest one to come out. And I bet you, if you asked every one of those people, say, "What what phone do you have right now?" Uh, the 12 comes out tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah. What do you have? I have the 11 Plus. So you need the 12? Whoa, yeah. There's changes. The camera got one megapixel better. You know, like it's, it's the, the thing that they have is no longer good enough because they have to have the next. And culture says they have to have the next. Culture says get that next big thing, that next toy. That's what you need. But see, the Bible challenges that in every way. The Bible challenges our value or, or the value our, our culture plays places on uh, our economic value, or the value that culture places on money and wealth. The Bible challenges money and wealth and the accumulation of money and wealth in every way. We're so prone to say, mine. We say, that's mine. Or we say, yeah, I own that. Or this is my property. This is my thing. We're so prone to saying that. And to everything on the earth, God says, mine. We want to say mine, but God says, no, no. No, a foolish human being, it's all mine. Everything is mine. The Old Testament talks over and over and over in so many places about, about the whole earth belongs to God. The whole earth and everything on it is His. It also says in Leviticus 25, 23, it says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. I love that. This is God saying, you can't sell the land permanently because it's mine, Uh, and you're living on my land. You're living in my place, right? God's saying, this is mine. You want to say mine, and you want to sell it, and you want to accumulate that wealth, but I'm telling you, it's mine. It's not yours. It's so much so it speaks, uh, or it talks about wealth and, and money so much so that built into Jewish custom is a year every 49 years called the year of Jubilee, it's every set, or seventh set of seven. So the seventh, seven. So the 49th year. It's the year of Jubilee. And in this year, slaves and prisoners are set free. So if you had sold yourself into slavery, if you, if you couldn't afford to live anymore, what you might do as, as a Jew in that time, you might just sell yourself and say, you know what, I can't afford anymore. Uh, I'm gonna sell myself uh, to Bob Shipley because they're doing just fine. And I'm gonna go work for the Shipleys. But after 49 years, Bob has to let me go. Bob has to let me free. I'm set free. My debt is paid. After every 49 years in the year of Jubilee, land or property that was sold reverts back to its original owner. So whoever owned it before, it reverts back to that person. So if I couldn't afford my land taxes, if I couldn't afford it, and I sold all my land to Bob, I said, Bob, you got all the money in the world, I'm selling you all my land. In 49 years, Bob's family has to give that back to my descendants. Or if I'm still around, Bob's got to give me back my land. The whole idea of this stopped the mass accumulation of wealth. This didn't allow Bob or whoever else to become the richest of the rich of the rich at the expense of the poor. It didn't allow this mass accumulation of wealth and the utter destruction of the poor that we have become so accustomed to in our society today. The land went back to its original owner. What it also did was it reminded people that wealth, land, everything that exists was not theirs, and it was God's. And so after 49 years, God would give it back and say, That's not yours to have, I'm giving it away again. Right? So after 49 years, God says, it's not yours, it's mine. Remember that. This is quite literally what is called a radical redistribution of wealth. The rich could simply not become richer at the cost of the poor continuing to become poorer. Now, one of the reasons we struggle with this accumulation of stuff, this accumulation of wealth, of property, of things, is because of our insecurity. As humans, we are naturally a fairly insecure bunch. We're insecure about a lot of things, but one of the things is that we just don't trust God as much as we should. We don't trust God enough. We trust ourselves more. We trust me more. So we're scared about what could happen to us If we don't collect more, we're scared about what could happen to us if we don't have. Proverbs 11.28 says, though, that he who trusts in his riches will wither. So we build up this false sense of security by providing ourselves with money, with wealth, with property, with things, because it makes us feel secure. But Proverbs says, don't trust in that. That will wither. But that's why this becomes a cycle. See, we, we, we feel insecure, uh, we don't trust that God will provide when we're 50 or 60, and so we save up a ton of money, and we, and we mass accumulate property and land and things for the future, because we don't trust that God will provide if we need it, and then all of a sudden, we accumulate enough that we're, we're okay, we feel like, yeah, I've got enough stuff, I and mean, it satisfies us temporarily, and then after a bit, even that's not enough, so we have to accumulate more. It's like when a kid opens a Christmas or a gift on Christmas morning, that gift is great for a little bit, and then after a time, that gift is no longer new, as they need another new thing to satisfy. So we need a newer and bigger thing over and over to satisfy. Wealth and money is a huge problem, and it's a huge problem in the church too. Uh, the reason I can almost guarantee that most of us struggle with simplicity is because of wealth and money that is built into our society. Money and status and power go hand in hand. If you have wealth, you're considered wise. If you have money, you're considered powerful. They go hand in hand, and it's built right into our society. And because of money and wealth, we struggle to live lives of simplicity. We struggle to live simple lives. Uh, A couple months ago, I talked about money and wealth, and I talked about what percentage we would be in in our church as people. Um, But we're the richest people in the world. If you own a cell phone, if you have clean running water in your house and your household combines to make an average household earning of $40,000 a year, you are in the richest 4% of the world. Just by owning a cell phone, having $40,000 with your whole family, and having clean running water, 96% of the world is poorer than you are. So when people in North America say, I don't have a money problem, it's laughable because we all have a money problem. In the West, we have a money problem. Jesus spoke about this money problem. In Luke 16, 13, he was talking about, or he's talking, he mentions mammon, and this is the Aramaic term for wealth, and he says, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And so you cannot serve God and mammon. And he says, you cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this isn't the only time Jesus outright speaks against money or or the pursuit of money at the cost of all things. In Luke 6.20, he says, blessed are the poor, because theirs is the kingdom of God. Four verses later in 6.24, he says, woe to you that are rich, because you have received your consolation. Woe to you that are rich. I bet when we read that verse, we don't go, hmm, Jesus is speaking directly to me, because I am rich. I bet a lot of us go, oh, yeah, those rich people, Bill Gates, better watch out. But he's speaking to us. We are the rich person to which he says, woe to you that are rich. 96% of the world is poorer than everyone here. Jesus describes how hard it is for rich, us, the rich, to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. It's quite a graphic description. I've never um, sewn. I'm not very good at it, uh, but I imagine it would be quite hard to put a can, or a camel, a candle maybe too, but a camel through that little needlehead. He, he says in Matthew 19, he says, he, he's talking to a rich young ruler, this rich young ruler says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, go and sell everything you have and give it all to the poor. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. See, Jesus is not okay with this mass storing up of wealth. He's not okay with this mass accumulation of money, cars, houses, vacation houses, cottages, clothes, jewelry, fancy stuff that our culture says, go get it. You can do it. Get the next big thing. Our culture says, go after it, and Jesus says, no, that's not the point. Jesus is not okay with that, but we find it so much in in our lives, we find it in culture, and we even find it in churches. We find churches that are, are competing to build the biggest, next most cool building with the fanciest things and the most beautiful, ornate statues. In Luke 6.30, Jesus says, give to everyone who asks of you, and of him who takes away your goods, do not ask them again. Give to everyone who asks from you, and if they take away your stuff, don't ask for it back. That's what he says. And do we live like that? Do we give to everyone who asks of us? Because I bet we often put conditions on it. Well, I would give to this person, see, but I bet you they're going to use it on alcohol, so I'm not giving it to them. Or I would give it to them, but I lent them money last time, and they squandered it on useless things. We don't live like that. We put conditions on our giving. If someone takes something from you, do you let them just have it, saying, well, you obviously needed it more than me? Or do we chase them down to make sure that we get it back? I told this story before, but I still don't know if my parents even currently own a key to the house they live in now, but we certainly didn't have keys to the houses that I was growing up in. And my dad used to always say, people would say, Dave, what if you get robbed? And we'd always joke, well, we have nothing worth stealing. We're pretty poor. But my dad always said, if they take what we have, then they obviously needed it more than us. But do we live like that? Do we honestly say, if you steal my bike, you must have needed it more than me, and you can have it. It's yours. Or do we go after that thing because that thing is mine, and you took what was mine, right? Jesus is saying that if we lay up our treasures in our stuff, that's where we find our heart. That's where our heart is, and the things that we lay up and we store up as our treasures This inner reality that I spoke of, this inner heart set and this inner mindset starts with reframing what we lay our treasures in. Where is our heart found? Where do we find our treasure? Is our treasure in our stuff? Is that the thing we want most? Where do we find our treasure? Just a little side note, Jesus speaks about money and economics more than any other social issue that he ever talks about. He talks about money and wealth more than any other social issue. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we are all evil and terrible people for enjoying anything in the world. I'm not calling us to this extreme ascetic lifestyle where we sell everything and we all go communally live in sackcloths on the corner of Franklin Avenue. All right? I'm not saying that all material is evil. I'm not saying we need to go that far. Jesus said, go enjoy the world. He made creation enjoyable for us so that we would enjoy things. But what I am saying is that those things are intended to be enjoyed, not intended to be worshipped. Those things are intended to be enjoyed, but they're not supposed to be where we lay up our treasure. It's okay to enjoy the things of this world, but what's not okay is finding your heart in your things. See, simplicity places possessions in their proper perspective. Simplicity reminds you of what is most important in your life. Where your treasure truly is, that's what simplicity does. It reminds you where your treasure is. Simplicity, living with an inner heart set and inner mindset of simplicity, reorients your focus and your mind of where your heart is supposed to be placed. Simplicity finds joy in the not having of things as much as it finds joy in the having. Simplicity lets us enjoy our possessions without our possessions destroying and consuming us. The practice of simplicity requires a couple things. We have to do a few things inside of us to practice simplicity. And the first thing is that we have to seek God first. Simplicity requires that we seek God first. It requires that nothing comes before the kingdom of God. Nothing comes before God. Matthew 6.25 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be yours as well. In this verse, in this context here, Jesus is talking about worrying about what to eat. His disciples were worrying about things. He says, he says you know, the birds, what do the birds do for God? But God feeds them every day. And he says, what, what do the lilies do for God? But the lilies are dressed even more beautifully than even King Solomon was. He says, and King Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as the lilies. And what do they do for God? Yet God feeds and clothes them every day. So he says, Seek God in his kingdom first. And God will provide the rest of these things for you. Jesus' point here is that the first thing we have to focus on, if we want to live a life of simplicity, is that we focus on seeking God before everything else. We focus on seeking God before we worry about getting the next line of fashion that comes out. We focus on God before we worry about what our next meal is going to be. We focus on God before everything and anything. Nothing else can be the center in our practice of simplicity. See, some people want to practice simplicity, but they do it wrong because seeking God is not their first and utter mindset. It's kind of a secondary. And their first thing that they're looking about is, is de-accumulating things, making room in their basement so that in a few years they can add some more things. Right? We don't, that's not how we go about simplicity. When we start with simplicity, seeking God is the first and the center. It's what we're focused on the entire time. And then we trust that God will take care of everything else. God will take care of the details. We just worry about seeking God. In practicing simplicity, seeking God is our main focus and nothing else is our focus. Not getting out of the rat race, uh, that's not your focus. The global redistribution of wealth so that the poor will become a little bit wealthier, again, that's not your main focus. The concern for the environment, even though it's a great concern, is not your main focus. In simplicity, seeking God is our main focus. The main focus has to remain seeking God. The second thing is that we have to look at everything we have, receiving everything we have as a gift. Absolutely everything that we have is a gift. And this is an important inner attitude as we practice simplicity. A lot of us have jobs or have had jobs, uh, and hopefully if it was a job, you, you got paid for it, otherwise you were volunteering and they told you it was a job. Uh, But hopefully you got reimbursed for your job, and some of us might have got paid a lot more than others, and that's okay. But many of us have had jobs. But even though we are paid for our jobs and we get money for those things, we have to remember that it's not our jobs that provide for our lives. It's not our salary that provides for our lives. That money is not what is providing for our life. God is the one who is providing for our life. Those things are gifts. God is the one who provides our daily bread. We don't provide it ourselves with our job. God provided the sun. As far as I know, no one in this room can provide the sun. God provides the air around us. God provides the water that we drink. The things that we have are not a result of our hard work and of the sweat off our brow. The things that we have are a result of God's grace. We're tempted to think that what we own is because of our own personal hard work. We think, I have all these nice things because I have worked hard my life. But we need to be reminded that we are dependent on God for everything. God gave you all these things. When I first got into Bible college, uh, I quickly realized how expensive Bible college is. uh, And I didn't realize it when I signed up, or I might have been uh, dissuaded a bit. But I I signed up when I got in, and I realized it was going to be very expensive. And I wasn't sure I was going to be able to afford to go. I really wasn't sure I was able to go, afford to go. I was only working part-time. Uh, I was working part-time, actually. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Sport Mart. Uh, it was like the Walmart of Sport Check. Uh, so as you can imagine, it didn't actually pay very well part-time with this job. Uh, so I was working there, and I was volunteering in the youth ministry at, uh, at my church, or my parents' church. So I was volunteering a bit there, and I was working at Sport Mart. Uh, I'd quit my job in carpentry. After high school, I went to be in carpentry. And I quit my job making good money in carpentry because I realized that the people I was around all the time were not the best influence in my life. And they were not contributing to my growth as a Christian, and they're actually helping me go the other way. And this was something I needed to distance myself with because I, I would give in to the temptations hanging out with these guys. And so I said, God, I'm, I'm out of there. I'm going to just work part-time at Sportmart. And so one weekend I was up at Blizzard, uh, and it was about well Blizzard time, so January February, and I was up there as a team captain, and I realized that my school fees were coming up, uh, and my school fees were coming up in the summer, and I really felt like I was supposed to go back to school, but I knew that I wasn't going to be able to afford it with my job at Sportmart, and my parents didn't have any money for us to go to school. So I was praying, uh, and a friend said to me, he said, Luke, well, why don't you just make the decision and tell God make the decision and say, God, if it's the wrong one, stop me. So I said, awesome idea. I would love to. So I said, God, I want to go to school. You want me to go to school. uh, And I I need money. So I'm going to go back into carpentry, God. I'm going to go back into carpentry because then I'll make the money, no problem. And if it's the wrong decision, God, stop me. And that is a dangerous thing to pray. The next morning, I was in the general session, and my job as team captain was to get everyone hyped up. I was getting everyone excited, and I'm wearing a ridiculous outfit, and I was getting everyone jazzed up for the music. And I jumped up in the air, and I landed on the ground, and I landed on a cable, and I tore my ACL, my MCL, and my LCL. And I wasn't able to walk anymore. I realized that I had to get in a wheelchair. I realized that I was going to be on crutches for many months. I realized I was going to need surgery for my knee. God certainly stopped me, and he did it pretty obviously. And I'm praying a few months later, in the summer, and I still didn't realize this. I was like, whoa, way to go, God. Now where am I going to get the money? So I'm still frustrated, thinking, like, I don't have any money, God. How am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to provide my money to go? I can go to school. And I'm praying a few months later. It's the summer, and I, I realize I don't have the money. It's like a month until school. There's no way I'm going. So I said, at the end of the week, God, I'm going to email the school and just say I can't come. I'm going to say, I can't afford it. I didn't get enough from the government. I don't have enough to go. I'm going to drop out. And so I said, God, what, what is your plan in all this? You told me to go, and now I don't get to go because there's no money. And a few days later, I got a message from a young couple in the church who had just had twins. Uh, and they said, hey, Luke, we, we feel like we're supposed to give you $5,500. We feel like God's telling us to give you $5,500. That was the exact dollars that I was short going to school. That was the exact dollar amount that I needed. The point of this story is that I was frustrated because I was trying to provide for my life. I thought it was up to me to provide for my life. And I forgot that it was God who's supposed to be the one providing for my life. And I needed to learn to trust that God would provide for my life. And because I'm dumb, God had to do it in a pretty obvious way, which was basically breaking my leg. God had to show me how foolish I was for thinking that I was the provider in my life. God is the one who provides for our lives. God provides everything, and everything that we have is a gift from Him. And the last thing is that we have to live with a mindset that says, what's mine is yours. We have to live with that mindset inside of us. What's mine is yours. Sharing is caring, that old adage. And it's true. What I have is available to you whenever you need it. Because going back to that verse from Leviticus, nothing is really mine in the first place. Nothing is mine. It's all on loan from God. And so God is free to give it to whoever he wants. So if you need it, it's yours. I'm free to give it to you because it's not my thing. Now, this doesn't just mean something simple like lending your your neighbors a cup of sugar and going, ah, look at me doing God's work. Enjoy that sugar. It means whatever you have. If your neighbor comes and says, I need your car for the weekend. Sure, here's the keys, right? It means living with this radical what's mine is yours and you're free to have it mindset. And you might think, well, I don't know, Luke, that's a little silly. The disciples got this. If you read Acts, the beginning of Acts, it says they shared everything. Everything was shared in common and no one went without. No one among them went without. See, all your stuff is not your stuff. All your stuff is God's stuff that he's given to you. He's lent to you. And all of that is given so that you can be a blessing to others with it. But we have a really hard time with this in our world. And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. A sense of security. A fear for the future. A lack of trust. A fear that says, well, I don't know, because if I give this to you and I need it again later, I won't have it anymore. So I don't know if I can give it to you because I might need this later. So I better save it just in case. And that's the wrong way to live. That's a way to live that doesn't trust that God will provide if we need it. Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. I'll provide what you need. So we don't need to be afraid that we're going to go without. We need to instead trust that if something comes up, God will provide. We need to live with a radical trust in God. If someone is in need, we are free to help them, even if it costs us everything we have. Because God will provide if we have a need. God is there for us. We need to trust that he will be there down the road. Richard Foster, I love what Foster has to say about this because he says, all of our goods, if our goods, if they are not available to the community, when someone in the community has need and it is clearly right and good, then those are stolen goods. I love that. He's basically saying, if you're not willing to give your goods up when someone has need, then you've stolen them. And he's not wrong. I mean, Shane Claiborne, Shane Claiborne is a, a more a current, contemporary version of Richard Foster, but even more radical. He goes so far as to say, it says, if someone has no coat and you have two coats, then you have stolen your second coat from the person who has none. He calls you a thief for having two coats when someone else has no coat. And I tend to agree with both of those statements, but it applies to more than just simple things like coats or our lawnmower. What if we have a cottage and we have a house? What do we say to the person that has no house? What if we have multiple income properties, and someone down the road is struggling to make rent every day? What if we have two cars, and a motorcycle, and a boat, and an RV, and and, and an all-terrain vehicle, but the person down the street has no car, and has to walk their whole family everywhere? What do we say to those people when Shane Claiborne says we have stolen those things from them? See, Shane's Claiborne's response, he was so broken by this, uh, and he realized that he did need a car in his life, but so did his neighbors, and none of his neighbors could afford a car because he was living in, a really, or living in a really poor neighborhood in Philadelphia. So what he did was, he took his van that he had bought, and he took his car keys, and he went to the key cutter, and he got keys cut for every single person in his neighborhood. And he went door to door and gave them their key and said, hey, that's the van, uh, you're free to use it whenever it's parked here. It's, it's our van now. We can all use it. Everyone go ahead. He told him it was their van, too. Then he realized that some of his neighbors couldn't actually afford food for their whole families, and he had a a small backyard. It was maybe 10 by 10, but he realized that his backyard was just wasted space with grass. He's just sitting there being grass, doing nothing, and so he said he ripped all the grass out, and he started growing food for all his neighbors. He said, this was mine, but it's not mine. It's yours. You might call that radical or too far, but Shane Claiborne says it's still not far enough. It's still not far enough. If someone has no coat and you have two, you've stolen one from the other person. Right now, in our house, in my house, in your house, or in your possession, what do we have two or three or even four of? And what does someone in this church or in this community or just across the street, what do they have none of? And we have four or five. Five. See, we share because we know God has blessed us with these gifts so that we can be a blessing to others. We don't take these things that God has given us to hoard them up and stow them away just in case. We share because we know and trust that God will provide for us. These things are all we need to practice the inner mindset and inner heartset of simplicity, and that inner heartset and inner mindset will turn into outer lifestyle choices. Now, before I finish up, I just want to end on a few practical tips uh, for living simply. The first is to buy things for their usefulness, not their status. Buy things for their usefulness, not because of this perceived power and authority that they give you. Cars are for driving. Cars are not for prestige in our neighborhood. Consider if you even need a car. Do you really need a car in the life that you live? Maybe a bus pass will do maybe a bike will do. I I, I really look up to my dad. My dad has biked to work for pretty much every day that I've ever known him. He's not exactly a young guy anymore, and uh, I think he has a a work vehicle now, but for as long as I have known my dad, he biked across the whole city to go to work, and there were definitely days where I have driven from the house on the lawn up here if it was raining, (laughs) and I look at that, and I go, jeepers, what am I doing? But see, do we really need a car? In the life that you live, in the things that you do in your daily life, do you really need a car? Or could a bus pass work? Or would even a bike work? And in your house, when you buy a house, don't look at the house and consider, like, look at how many rooms I have. I have nine rooms with many things in all of my rooms. And ah, look at how impressive they are. I have a three-story fireplace in my house. I have a five-acre backyard in my house. We don't buy things for how impressive are. A house is for getting out of the rain. House is for living in. Consider how much space do you really need for you and your family in your house. Do you really need five bedrooms in your house for you and your wife? Because maybe you need one or two if you're getting in trouble a lot and you got to sleep in the guest room, but you need maybe one or two. But do you need that fifth bedroom? Your clothes. Your clothes are to keep you warm. Your clothes are simply there to keep you warm. They aren't there to impress your friends and neighbors, they aren't there to make you better than someone else. You don't need to keep up with with what's cool. And, I mean, if we try, we'll probably realize that we don't keep up with what's cool very often. But we don't wear clothes to keep up with what's cool. Wear your clothes until they wear out. How often do you go buy a new thing because it was really nice and it was on sale? Right? Oh, I bought this shirt. Why? Well, it was on sale. Did you need that new shirt? Did you really need it? John Wesley, great. I love what he says here. He says a great thing. He says, as for apparel, as for clothes... I buy the most lasting and, in general, the plainest things that I can. I buy no furniture, save what is absolutely necessary and what is cheap. John Wesley, he gets it. I love that. I buy no clothes. I buy the most lasting and the plainest. But I don't even know if I see a lot of my pastor's friends wearing the plainest. I follow this account on Instagram called Preachers with Sneakers, and another one is called now Prophets with Watches. And what this does is it's a, this guy, he takes photos of famous preachers that he sees and the shoes that are wearing, and he puts the price tag below them. And he does it now with shirts and with belts, and he posted a shirt the other day this pastor in the States, and I won't name him and shame him, but he's wearing a $7,000 T-shirt. I, I know this was a gift, and I'm pretty sure this was about $12, and my pants were a gift too, actually. And, and I mean, I couldn't afford a $7,000 t shirt but I wouldn't want to wear a $7,000 T-shirt. That T-shirt's more than a car. If I had a $7,000 T-shirt, I might want to frame it. But, but I look at this and go, look at the message we are saying as pastors when we are walking around in $7,000 T-shirts with a $20,000 watch on our wrists. And we tell people to live simply. Shane Claiborne, uh, about uh, clothing, this is one of the greatest things, Uh, Shane Claiborne realized that he was wearing clothes when he didn't need to, Uh, he should just learn how to sew. So Shane Claiborne learned how to make his own clothing, and for years he has been wearing clothes only, clothes that he has made himself. And I love that. Now I'm not sure anyone would want to see me wearing clothes that I made (laughs) myself, Uh, I'll try to get really good at it before I do it, but I love that lifestyle, and Jesus says when... Nothing with you, no staff, no bag, no money, no extra shoes, no $7,000 T-shirt. That's how we're supposed to live. The second thing is develop a habit of giving things away. If you find you're getting attached to a possession, consider giving it away. Just give it away to somebody, even if they didn't ask for it. If you find yourself really attached to this possession, give it away before that possession starts to consume you. doesn't matter what it is. If you look at a thing and go, ooh, I can't live without that thing, give it away. Give it away because there's nothing in our lives that we can't live without except for Jesus. Give it to someone who needs it, someone who can use it, or heck, just give it to someone so it's not in your life anymore. Whatever it is, if you've become attached to it, give it away. Deaccumulate your life. Our houses are filled with, well, with, with crap, with stuff we don't need. We, we fill our houses with things that we don't need, and then our houses get too full, so we go and we buy storage lockers. And this is the greatest parody of my life. We have all these things we bought that we, we needed them, but they don't fit in our house, so we put them in a storage locker uh, because, well, we really don't need them that badly, so we'll put them in the storage locker. But I gotta keep it because it's mine. So we have a storage locker full of things that we probably don't even use and never go visit. We have so much stuff. We do this. One of the most thriving businesses in North America is the rental of storage lockers because people have too much stuff. And the last, or the third tip, learn to enjoy things without owning them. Learn to enjoy something without having to own it. Owning things is an obsession in our culture. We have to own it. And the reason is because if we own it, then we can control it. If it's mine, I can dictate what happens with it. And we desire control more than most things in our lives. But see, we can enjoy lots of things without owning them. Learn to enjoy a nice walk without having to buy the neighborhood that you're walking in. Learn to enjoy the beach. Go for a walk on the beach without feeling like you have to buy a cottage on that beach. Learn to enjoy going for a walk in your neighborhood park. Enjoy a book from your library. Those are free. I can't even believe they still exist in our culture, and they're free. Learn to enjoy it. Learn to enjoy a public park for an afternoon of fun instead of having to spend millions of dollars on vacations around the world. The fourth thing is reject things that lead to the oppression of others. And this one is hard. Where's your shirt made? Later on, check the label of where your shirt is made or where your pants are made. And I bet you most of our stuff doesn't say made in Canada on it or made in the USA. I bet you most of our stuff is made in a country where people are exploited for their labor, where people are exploited for their service. Another really one, or one we're really guilty of, we don't even realize it, your coffee. Where was your coffee made this morning? Was your coffee sipped at the expense of Latin American farmers that are being abused and put into slavery for their goods? See, our lust for wealth has led to the poverty and oppression of others. When we buy things, buy smart. Yes, it might cost you a little bit more money to buy something that was made locally or made by someone in a fair trade company, but I think that that two extra dollars you spend on a coffee is worth it so that a six-year-old isn't put into slavery so that you can have a cheaper coffee. And lastly, shun things that distract you from seeking God first. This is the most important. Get rid of things in your life that are causing you to seek God second or seek God third. To live a simple life, we seek God first and foremost, and don't lose focus of that. Hockey is my favorite sport. I love hockey. Uh, I love watching hockey. I love playing hockey. I love anything to do with hockey. But there was a time in my life, uh, or sorry, there is a time in my life in Bible college uh, when my roommate wow where my roommate and I, that was a tongue twister, we would wake up before class. We had 8.30 class. We would wake up at 6 and go play pond hockey across the street every morning because we loved hockey that much. We'd get out there, me and him, one-on-one at 6.30 in the morning because I loved hockey that much. But there was a time in my life where for two years I quit hockey and never played a single game because I realized that hockey was distracting me from God. And I wasn't living a simple life because hockey had become a focus. And we need to shun and let go of anything that makes God second or third. May God give you and me too the courage, the wisdom, and the strength always to hold the kingdom of God as number one priority in our lives. Because to do so is to live in simplicity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you made us simple beings. God, and we're sorry for how complex we have made our lives. Father, teach us to simplify our living. Lord, give us an inner mindset, an inner heartset that is a life of simplicity that seeks you first and foremost among everything else. Lord, help us to look at our possessions in proper perspective. Father, help us to remember that everything is given as a gift from you and that nothing is ours. Lord, everything is yours. All the earth and everything in it belongs to you. So Lord, give us simple mindsets. Give us simple lives. Father, let us become a simple people again that seek you first and foremost. In Jesus' name, amen.